Our sermon text for this morning is Jeremiah chapter 4 and verses 5 through 31. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 through 31. The sermon is entitled, The Lord Pronounces Judgment, Part 1. Listen now to the Word of God. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not. For I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem saying, it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against, against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved 
to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of, the hor- of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean when you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is indeed a treasure to us. It is more precious to us than silver and gold. It is sweeter to us than honey. We give you praise for it. We thank you for the way you've revealed yourself, your own character, your own work of redemption in the pages of Holy Scripture. And Father, we pray this morning that you might grant to us eyes to see the glory of God in the text before us. We pray this morning that you would grant to us hearts of meekness and humility. We pray that your word would reach our very hearts and so that the bitterness of sin might be cast out. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning we continue our series through Jeremiah. In a quick review in chapter 1, we saw how the Lord, if you remember, called Jeremiah to be his prophet during the last year of the reign of King Josiah. That would have been 627 B.C. And Jeremiah continued in that prophetic service for the next 40 years until Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians uh, during the reign of King Zedekiah in 587 B.C. You remember in chapter 1 and verse 5, the Lord told Jeremiah that he was appointing him to be a prophet to the nations, not just prophesying his word to Judah, not just to his own covenant people, but to all the nations. He said in verses 9 through 10, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. For what end? To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is what we find throughout the prophecy of Jeremiah. In chapter 2, verses, in verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse 5, we saw Jeremiah in action as a prophet for the first time as the Lord commanded him to go up to Jerusalem and to preach. 
And through that preached word, the Lord brought his case against his people like a husband, you remember, suing his adulterous wife for divorce. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6 through chapter 4 and verse 4, as we saw last week, the Lord chastised Judah for her half-hearted repentance during the reforms of King Josiah. But he also, you remember, he also very graciously called her to be reconciled through genuine, wholehearted repentance. Our text for this morning is the first part of a longer section which runs from chapter 4 and verse 5 to chapter 6 and verse 30. And in this section of Jeremiah, the Lord delivers yet another word of judgment through His prophet. But this time He does it through a series of three prophetic visions. The first appears in chapter 4, And verses 5 through 31, as the Lord describes in vivid detail the sounding of a trumpet blast of alarm and the subsequent flight of all the inhabitants of Judah to their fortified cities in the hope of finding refuge from the invading Babylonian army. But their refuges quickly turn into prisons as the Babylonian army conducts sieges in order to starve the people out. The final siege, of course, Uh, being against Jerusalem. And that's what we see in the second vision in chapter 5 as the Lord describes the way panic grips the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem during that final siege. Eventually that siege reaches its intended effect, which leads to the third and final vision in chapter 6 as the Lord describes yet another trumpet blast of alarm but this time not calling the people to flee to refuge in the cities, but to flee the cities themselves, to flee Jerusalem itself, though tragically there's nowhere for them to go. In this series of visions, we see an example of what the Lord meant in chapter 1 when He told Jeremiah that He had set Him over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. Judah is one of those kingdoms. And so, in the overall flow of Jeremiah's prophecy, we've moved from the Lord's identification of Judah's problem in chapter 2, namely her lack of love through her idolatry, lack of love to him through her idolatry, her spiritual adultery against him, to his proposed solution in chapter 3, namely reconciliation with Him through the grace of repentance, to a foretelling of where all of this is ultimately headed in chapters 4 through 6, which of course is the execution of His judgment against Judah by way of the Babylonian invasion. And so as we look at the first of these three prophetic visions within this this section this morning, We'll divide our text into two sections, two large sections. The first, verses 5 through 18, where we see the alarm of judgment, the alarm of judgment. And then the second, verses 19 through 31, where we see the anguish of judgment, the anguish of judgment. Let's begin in that first section there, verses 1 through 18, where we see the alarm of judgment. Look at verses 5 through 6 again with me. The text says, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. 
Cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard towards Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. The Lord now commands Jeremiah to preach not just to Jerusalem as in the past couple of chapters, but to all of Judah. And what's his message? To sound the alarm. To have everyone flee to their fortified cities. Why? Because the Lord Himself is about to bring disaster down upon them from the north. The disaster about which the Lord speaks is still future. It is the future Babylonian invasion. He will bring disaster upon Judah by building up Babylon such that they easily overpower Judah. And so in the same series of events in which the Lord plucks up and tears down, destroys and overthrows Judah, He will build and plant Babylon. But notice something about the Lord's message, beloved. There's a subtle irony in the way it begins with the word that's translated assemble or be gathered together. The people of Judah ought to have been assembled in Jerusalem for worship. Indeed, that's what the word church, ecclesia in the Greek means. It means assembly. They should have been assembling in Jerusalem for worship. They should have been rejoicing in the presence of their God. But because they've refused to offer Him acceptable worship, because they've pursued their idolatry, they must now go through the futile exercise of assembling together for protection from the judgment to come. Beloved, this assembly is not the only assembly that will ever happen in the history of the world. You will either be assembled together as the church, as the body of Christ, or you will be assembled together in the end in the futile attempt to escape His judgment. But notice something about the way the Lord describes what's coming. Look at verses 7 through 8. He describes what's coming as a lion. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. There is a touch of irony in this description as well. Since the time that Jacob blessed his sons, back in Genesis chapter 49, right before he died, Judah had been associated with the image of the lion. This is, of course, why Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. And so the Lord now paints a picture of the destruction that will follow the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar describing him as a ravenous lion. Judah is no longer the powerful one. No longer the lion in the land. Because she's forsaken 
the one from whom she derived all her power, the Lord her God. And so now another lion comes on the hunt. He will be an unstoppable force who rises from the wilderness of this fallen world, the thicket, to destroy nations, to build his little kingdom. He will lay the land to waste and raise her cities to the ground. It's interesting that the Lord now speaks of the cities being raised to the, to the ground. He is, he's looking forward at this point to the third and final vision that will come in chapter 6. Though the people have sounded the alarm and they fled to their cities, those cities will prove to be bad refuges. The refuges will be prisons for a time, and then eventually they will fall. They can't actually provide their own security. It's not possible. And so he says that their cities will eventually be destroyed. The only proper response will be to lament and wail and sackcloth and ashes. But notice, notice the change in pronouns in verse 8 as the Lord calls His people to respond with, with repentance. In verses 6 through 7, the Lord Himself, looking back, is clearly speaking, using the first person singular I and the second person plural your. But in verse 8, the language shifts to the first person plural us. So the Lord Himself, the Lord's no, it's no longer the Lord who's speaking. The same thing happened back in verse 5, which is one reason why the ESV, if you'll note, translates that part of verse 5 as a quote that the Lord puts in the mouths of His people. Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, and here's the quote, what the Lord is saying His people should say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. And so now in verse 8, we see something very similar. The text says, for, for this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. Wail what? Here's, here's what His people should say as they wail before the Lord. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In other words... The Lord pictures His people, Judah, as assuming a posture of repentance and then saying before Him, actually before one another, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Notice that, beloved. They're not addressing the Lord. They're simply grieving among themselves. The fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Don't miss that. As we've already seen, the Lord wants His people's hearts that is one of the key messages of the book of Jeremiah. It's one of the glories of the promise of the new covenant. And the revival that would come in the hearts of God's elect people. The Lord wants His people's hearts, and so He calls them to repentance over and over, but they refuse. They feign repentance by way of a worldly grief that leads to death but they never actually experience a godly repentance that leads to genuine, or godly grief that leads to genuine repentance and life. And that's what we see now. The people aren't wailing because they've sinned against the Lord. They're not even dressing the Lord. They're not saying, oh, Lord, we've sinned against you. Would you forgive us? They're not saying that at all. 
They aren't wailing or, or, or grieving over the fact that they've spurned the love of God, which He has held out to them generation after generation after generation. They're grieving among themselves because He remains angry with them. In other words, they don't grieve because their sin robs God of His glory. They grieve because the glory of God's justice costs them their comfort. This is the difference between a false repentance that merely goes through the motions in the attempt to manipulate God so that you can achieve another level of comfort in life and a genuine repentance that is from the heart that involves a, a contrite heart, a broken heart, because you have rebelled against the God who loves you, and you desire that He would be glorified in your life. The Lord wants His people's hearts. The Lord wants your heart. Do you know that? The Lord wants your heart. Not so that he might take it and crush it. You've probably had that experience. I think most creatures have had that experience. You've given your heart to someone. And they've sinned against you. And it crushed you. It makes us reticent to ever open ourselves up like that again. It makes us wary of ever giving our heart to someone like that again. But you need never fear giving your heart to the Lord. The Lord is good. The Lord will never crush your heart. The Lord wants your heart that He might mend it, that He might put it back together, that He might heal it, that He might further increase your capacity to love both him and others over time. The Lord then comments on the vision of alarm saying in verses 9 through 10, if we move a bit further in the passage, he says, in that day declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. So here we have even more evidence that the repentance that's pictured in verse 8 is a false repentance. If the repentance were a true repentance, the kings and officials would be courageous in the Lord. The priests would be holy to the Lord. And the prophets would be speaking forth truth from the Lord. But in that day, the day of judgment to come during the Babylonian invasion, the Lord says the opposite will happen among the leaders of Judah. And why? Because they don't know the Lord. They will be exposed as frauds. They will be exposed as wicked shepherds who devour the sheep rather than good shepherds who nurture the sheep. And in this, we see a type of the final judgment to come when everything that's been hidden will be revealed and God will judge the secrets of men. Look at verse 10. The text says, 
Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. This is the first that we've heard from Jeremiah since he protested his call back in chapter 1 and verse 6, other than those moments where he answered the Lord about the visions that he gave him in chapter 1, just simply saying, I see an almond branch. You know, I see, a, I see a boiling pot spilling out from the north. This is the first we've heard from him since then. He protested, of course, back in chapter 1 and verse 6, as the Lord called him to be a prophet, saying, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. And so once again, he's protesting God's word. But as we'll see, as we make our way through the book of Jeremiah, the Lord doesn't just intend to minister through Jeremiah, but to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is still a young man with much maturing to do. He is strong in his body, but in many ways he is weak in his spirit. And as we'll see, by the time his ministry ends, some 40 years later, his condition will be just the opposite. He'll be physically weakened by age, by war, by persecution, but he will be spiritually strengthened through the refining of his faith in the Lord. But for now, he protests. He protests the word that the Lord has just commanded him to preach. It appears that Jeremiah had been fooled to some extent by the prophets who had prophesied in Jerusalem, the false prophets who had prophesied peace, peace, when there was no peace. The Lord will describe them in that way later in chapter 6 and verse 14 of Jeremiah. It would have been easy to make or to mistake, or that would have been an easy mistake to make. After all, I'm sure you've had this experience. It's far easier to believe comfortable lies than uncomfortable truths, isn't it? And what Jeremiah has just received from the Lord is a deeply uncomfortable truth. Though Jeremiah protests the Lord and his word, the Lord doesn't relent. The Lord continues explaining in verses 11 through 12, saying, At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. The Lord now compares Nebuchadnezzar to a hot wind which comes from the desert, not like the gentle wind by which farmers would winnow their grain, but a full wind, the wind of a storm. He will come down upon the people of Judah for the Lord. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar will be an unwilling servant of the Lord. And through him, the Lord will bring his judgment down upon Judah, the same judgment of which he now speaks as opposed to the lies that the false prophets have been speaking. He continues 
with that image as he paints another picture in verses 13 through 17 saying, Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. And then the Lord pauses for a moment to rebuke his people saying, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? In the days of King Josiah, Judah had taken steps toward reformation. They had cleansed their hands, but not their hearts. And the Lord wants their hearts. For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim, warn the nations that He's coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field. Are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. And then in verse 18, we read the why. Why will the Lord come in judgment upon His people Judah? He answers, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter And here's a key phrase to see in this chapter. It has reached your very heart. Here's the tragedy of sin, beloved. Sin promises freedom. Sin promises flourishing. Sin promises security. But it can only deliver bondage and brokenness and death. Sin swells the heart with joy in the moment. But when the moment has passed and judgment comes, bitterness reigns in that same heart as the truth of one's accountability to God comes into focus. And so here's the choice. Either God will reach your heart by the grace of genuine repentance or the bitterness of sin will reach your heart. And continue to lodge in it forever. That brings us to verses 19 through 39, where we see not the alarm of judgment, but the anguish of judgment. Look at verses 19 through 21. The text continues My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Now one thing that's hard to do as you're working through a prophecy like this is to to keep track of who's speaking at what moment. And at this point, we don't see the Lord speaking for Himself anymore to His people But what we see the Lord doing is He's picturing Judah crying out collectively, describing how He just said in verse 18, the doom had reached her very heart. He began, of course, back in verse 5, describing the alarm that would eventually ring out through Judah, calling the inhabitants of the land to flee to the fortified cities for protection from the Babylonian invaders. And so now He describes Judah's heart in terms of a fortified city. 
a city with walls, a city in which things lodge, just as Judah will flee to her fortified cities but find no refuge there, so the same will be true for her spiritually. Sin and its consequences, beloved, are never merely outward. They are inward. As the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 15 and verses 19 and 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So what we see as, as Judah flees to her fortified cities, as she flees to Jerusalem in response to the judgment that God brings down upon them, which He Himself told them He was going to bring 40 years before He brought it. What we see them doing is what every person who continues in bondage to sin, the same way they react to the judgment of God. Not by coming before the Lord to ask His forgiveness in a spirit of true repentance, but instead by fleeing from the Lord, by retracting into themselves, you see. So the outward judgment of the Babylonian invasion was really just a a shadow of the spiritual judgment to come in hell. That judgment, of course, will involve a spiritual turmoil of the highest order as the full weight of the wrath and curse of God are unleashed on all those who remain in the estate of sin outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Judah thought she might escape Nebuchadnezzar behind the walls of her fortified cities, and though she erected walls in her heart against the judgment of God, she can't actually escape either. In the end, the Lord will strip down the walls of her heart to confound her with grief because of her sin. Look at verse 22. The text says, For my people are foolish. They they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. And so having heard Judah's cry of anguish, the Lord now tells them why they suffer such anguish. They suffer because they are foolish. They don't actually know Him. Like stupid children, they have no understanding. They're wise, but only in a worldly sense. They're wise in doing evil, but they don't know how to do good. And in this we see the total depravity of the human heart that remains in the estate of sin and misery. Judah is blind to the truth morally unable to do anything to save themselves. Jeremiah sees the most terrifying vision of all in verses 23 through 38. The text says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled, I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. 
For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Now last week, if you remember, we encountered the first prophecy of the new covenant in the book of Jeremiah. We found that in chapter 3 and verses 15 through 18. And we noted at that time how prophecies of the future almost always have multiple layers of meaning and multiple ways of fulfillment. And that's what we see now. Jeremiah uses the language of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 to describe the judgment that the Lord is about to bring down upon the land of Judah. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, if you remember, describes the newly created earth as being without form and void, darkness being over the face of the deep. And it then proceeds to describe the way that God gives the earth form and fills it with good things and then speaks into it on the first day, light. And so, Jeremiah now describes the land after God's judgment, the land of Judah after God's judgment, as being without form and void. And so we see that divine judgment is a kind of undoing of the creation. It is a perversion of the good thing that God created. It's a kind of decreation, if you will. And so just as in chapter 1 and verse 3, the Lord created light, so Jeremiah describes the heavens after Judgment is having no light. Sin and the curse of God's judgment serve to darken that which ought to be illuminated. Judah was called to be a light to the nations. But now the land is utterly dark. Just as God filled the sky with birds and gave man dominion over them to be fruitful and multiply upon it, so he describes the land after God's judgment as having no birds and no man to care for the ground. Instead, all the cities of the land are in ruins, and the fields, rather than being productive, have become deserts. It is a wilderness wasteland. The Lord describes the whole land as a desolation. And He says, the earth shall mourn, and the heavens shall be dark. Beloved, these are images of a judgment that clearly reaches well beyond the situation in Judah in 587 B.C. Indeed, reaching all the way to the last day. And what we see in the judgment that God brings upon Judah through the Babylonian invasion is really a type of foreshadowing of the final judgment to come on the last day. Just as the judgment of Jeremiah's day was certain because the Lord, as He says in verse 28, spoke it, purposed it, and determined not to relent or turn back from it. So the judgment to come on the last day is certain, beloved. It is certain. There is no escape. It will come. Yet. Yet. Look at the end of verse 27 again. The Lord says, Yet I will not make a full end. 
In the midst of his judgment, the Lord remembers mercy. He determines not to make a full end to his redemptive purposes for his people, but he remembers them in mercy. He's still only given us little pictures, little glimpses of what that will be. It will become even more full when we get to the section of Jeremiah's prophecy that's historically been called the book of hope, where we find the first occasion in which the words new covenant appear in Holy Scripture. Though God's judgment was fierce in Judah's day, and though it will be fierce on the last day, yet He has determined to save a people unto Himself and to make all things new. He will not bring a full end, only a partial end. In His judgment, He will remember mercy. And so here again, we see a a glimmer of hope pointing us, pointing His people. God is pointing His people forward through His prophet to the sending of the Messiah and the coming of the administration of the new covenant. Look at verses 29 through 31 as we reach the end of the passage. The text says, At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks, all the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain do you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you, they seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. So the Lord now pictures Jerusalem as a stubborn and aloof prostitute, beautifying herself in vain, putting paint on her eyes, But it's all in vain because her lovers despise her and actually seek her life. What the Lord here means by Judah's lovers is, of course, a comment on her attempt to buy her way out of trouble by subjugation to the right foreign power, whether it was Egypt or Assyria or Babylon for a time. Spiritually, of course, it goes deeper than that. It is her... Worship of demons through her idolatry. She's finally pictured as a woman in the anguish of giving birth to her first child. Gasping for breath before crying out in terror at the realization that she is surrounded by murderers. The birth of a child ought to be a joyous occasion. Sure, it will be, should be painful. But it ought to be a joyous occasion where you're surrounded by people you love who rejoice in the birth of the child. But here is Judah, the prostitute, giving birth to a child as she's surrounded by murderers who wait to destroy her and her child. 
This is the utter anguish of the judgment that God will execute against Judah and the final judgment that he will execute against the whole world on the last day. Beloved, this is where sin leads when it's unchecked by the grace of God. But there is hope in Christ. The Lord wants your heart. And guess what? So does Satan. He wants your heart. Your heart is the battleground. And either he will have your heart and fill it with bitterness and anguish as you suffer the judgment of God in the end. Or you will give your heart to God. Give your heart to Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And what will he do with your heart? He will mend it. He will eventually glorify it so that you need never fear invaders again. But only have love for him and love for neighbor forever. If you would have that kind of love this morning, you must first receive his love in Christ. You must flee to Christ for mercy. Bend your knee to him. He's the good king. The one who will care for your soul. And so I implore you this morning to do that. He stands ready and willing to receive all who will come to him in genuine repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a time to study it together. Thank you for the way that you speak to us. And we give you praise that you are a God who wants the hearts of your people. Not that you might crush them, but that you might mend them and build them up, make them whole again. Take our hearts, we pray. Grant us ever-deepening capacity to love you and to love our neighbors. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.